you would, join me in prayer. Lord, we pray that as we humbly seek you right now, that you would teach us to hide your word in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Order our hearts, direct our steps now so that we might reflect the perfect love that you have given us. We pray this in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, several of you have expressed that you're ready to get back to Matthew. I'm with you. I'm ready to complete the book as well, but just not yet. We have two special Sundays this month that's going to interrupt our study of Matthew. And I think both are valuable. The third Sunday of the month is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And with the Supreme Court's decision on abortion forthcoming, now more than ever we need to draw attention to life issues, particularly that of the unborn. But we always take the first Sunday of the new year to introduce our psalm of the year. This is a psalm that I ask our church members to dwell upon for the next 365 days, or 364 now. We also use this psalm to pray through during our summer prayer meetings. I personally use the psalm of the year to meditate upon during my quiet times before worship on Sunday morning. The psalms teach us not only to sing, since they are hymns, but but they also teach us how to express ourselves to God. From them, we learn language and concepts of how to speak to God when we are joyful, when we are hurting, when we feel his presence, and the times when we don't. And our psalm this year teaches us the same. Have you ever had someone say something about you that was just untrue or unjust? Or perhaps someone said something about you that was true, something that was true about you, but totally mischaracterized the truth. If not, then in our post-Christian age, someone will do so at some point. I can guarantee you. And we must know how to respond when they do. Turn your Bibles, if you will, back to Psalm chapter 5. This is found again on page 449 of your pew Bible. As the Lord directed my attention to this passage, I actually wondered why he was doing so. And then I had a few personal experiences in which this psalm prepared me. I had some friends, some of them very dear to me, have severe disagreements with me over this past year. And while each were criticizing an aspect of my ministry, their critiques were over entirely different issues. One was angry at me because I was a Calvinist. One disagreed with my eschatology, which they believed would dangerously harm the church. Another accused me of being woke, while another accused me of being homophobic. Another friend said I wasn't there for them, even though I left text after text and voicemail saying, let me know how I can help. And I asked all of these that criticized me if they heard me preach anything contrary to the gospel or orthodox Christianity, and all of them said no. But they were mad at me anyway. What do I do in such a situation? How do I react? It it was a tough year to sustain criticism. But Psalm 5 carried me through it. I think I can speak to every believer in this room that there is frustration within the culture of our society that believes that Christians are hateful. We get accused of all manner of untrue things that we don't love people that struggle with same-sex attraction, that that we don't care about ladies that get pregnant and may not have a means to support childs. 
where we don't care about justice or we are unloving because we believe in an exclusive way of salvation? What do we do when we are either slandered or other people's insecurities are directed towards us? How do we respond? When others behave badly towards us personally, what do we do? How can we respond in love when we are accused unjustly? That is what Psalm 5 deals with here. Therefore, it is still applicable today. This psalm is attributed to King David. We don't know the occasion for which he wrote it. There were numerous times over the great man's life when he was unjustly vilified. It it may have been when his pagan enemies thought he over-relied upon his God. Perhaps it was when he was loyal to his predecessor, King Saul, and yet Saul accused him of designs upon his throne. Maybe it was when his own son, Absalom, was trying to take his throne from him, and he was accused of being an inept ruler. This psalm fits any of those occasions for when one feels persecuted, especially by the world. It's not only appropriate for David's own personal situation, who, despite his shortcomings, is described as a man after God's own heart, but David also meant it to be didactic, instructional, a teaching psalm for others. That's why he wrote it as a poem and put music to it. You can see the words at the heading there, to the choir master. David intended for other believers to sing this along with him. It also says that this psalm was written with flutes in mind. And since it's a lament, I'm thinking that it's something more mournful, like the theme song to the movie Titanic, rather than maybe Jethro Tull. The tune of my heart will go on seems just perfect for this right now. The psalm is divided into two parts, a a prayer for God's justice and a prayer for God's righteousness. And each section contains an affirmation about God followed by a hope based upon that uh, assertion. And that's how we're going to follow it here this morning. So we have prayer, affirmation, hope, and then again, prayer, affirmation, and hope. David begins his prayer with a plea directed towards his God, Yahweh. The first two lines of the psalm parallel each other. He pleads, give ear to my words and consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. David is saying, listen, O God, not just to my words, but also hear my innermost thoughts, my emotions in this situation. It's not just the bare facts of the occasion. He wants God to understand how he feels too. This is akin to his expression in Psalm 39, verse 3. My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. That's the beauty of approaching our Lord. Since he's omniscient, he knows everything, even our innermost feelings, and we can trust him with all of it. It's like David is anticipating Paul's words in Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. God, hear my words, hear my feelings. The beauty is that God is interested in the total person. And we should know who he directs this towards. Verse 2, for to you do I pray. The second person singular, you, is emphatic in the Hebrew. This pronoun, along with the I in verse 7 and the you in verse 12, are emphasized. 
Each focuses on the action of the individual that it represents. So here David is saying, my prayer, O God, is directed to you alone. I'm not looking for a solution from anyone else here. I want you alone to hear my case. And even in the way he addresses God, we learn something about David's relationship to the Lord. In verse 1, all the letters are capitalized, so we know this is the Hebrew word Yahweh. I am who I am, the covenant name of God given to his people who he promised his love and favor. So David is approaching his deity with this covenant of favor in mind. This is the God who historically has shown that he saves his people from evil and he delivers his people from slavery. When you feel overwhelmed, isn't it good that you know you can approach God and know that you have his favor, knowing that he has saved your soul? You come to him already with his favor. Secondly, in verse 2, he calls Yahweh his king. This speaks of God's sovereignty and right to rule in every situation. Even though David was a king, there was a greater king to whom he was accountable. The Lord is the one who dispenses true justice. He expresses the same sentiment in Psalm 9, verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. Psalm 47, verses 7 through 8. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. In Psalm 66, 7. He who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. David knows that God is completely just. He is absolutely fair in his dealings. Therefore, he is appealing to the Lord's sovereign and just rule. There is no higher authority in the universe in which he can appeal. And finally, because he's David's covenant God, he personalizes these attributes. He says, my king, my God, God is not some distant entity from us, even though in the midst of the pain, it can feel like he may be distant or he's being silent. But by faith, there is an expectation that God will hear him based upon his personal relationship with David. But we should also note the type of devotion here as David cries out to God. He begins the day with this plea. Twice the text says, in the morning he prays. There is anticipation on David's part to hear from God. It's not like David asked once, but David is persistent here. And he does two actions as part of his devotion. Now, this is one of those rare occasions I don't like the ESV translation. It says, prepare a sacrifice. But that's not quite the meaning here. While I like the word prepare, the word sacrifice is not in the Hebrew. This verb communicates, I will set in order. I will set the direction towards you. And the reason the ESV translates it as I prepare a sacrifice is because this is the same verb in Leviticus that speaks of the priest getting the sacrifices in order or arranged before God. And the ESV, it makes the assumption that David is talking about some token sacrifice like an animal or grain or wine here. But I think David is setting his own heart in order to do the next action, which is to watch. David is looking out for the answer from God before he acts. He's not going to take matters into his own hands, but rather he will wait on God and how the Lord wants him to behave. Now, this is a far cry from how I want justice. 
I, I want it swift, and usually I'm tempted to act in the moment. I want to execute justice myself and then say, didn't I do well with that, God? No, David waits for God. He will hear from God first. He orders his own heart and attitude as he watches for God's action. And so within the next three verses, David affirms what he knows to be true about God. And it boils down to one essential truth. God hates any form of evil, and he will seek retribution for it. Now, I'm not keen on the NIV translation here that eliminates the word for at the beginning of verse 4. It's a Hebrew particle that connects verses 3 and 4. David is watching for God's reaction because he knows the Lord hates sin. Look at what God despises here. Wickedness, or it could be translated as faithlessness. The boastful, or the arrogant. Evildoers, or that can also be translated as those who do harm. They don't just think evil, but they actually harm others with it. Liars, bloodthirsty and deceitful men. And look at how David expects God to react to such behavior. He doesn't delight in it. He will not dwell among it. He will not allow them to stand before him. He won't even look at their evilness. He hates those that do harm. That's a strong word there, isn't it? Hate. Seems to rub against the concept of God hates the sin, but not the sinner. God destroys the liars. He abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. Because David knows this to be true about the Lord, he expects the Almighty to act because he knows that God hates evil. But what about David, right? That's what I'm thinking here. There's no way David is perfect. So why should David get preferential treatment here? How can David, a fallen man and known sinner, stand before the Lord? That is the hope of verse 7. Here's another one of those emphatic pronouns. But I... There is an acknowledgement here. Something is different from David, unlike the rest of common humanity. How will he come into the Lord's presence? But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. That is how. Steadfast love is the translation of God's special covenantal love, his hesed, his love towards his people that he has declared to love. It's a merciful love, a love that is unmerited. It is gracious. David, sinful as he is, can enter into God's presence through the Lord's covenantal love. This is important here. Notice that David does not enter the Lord's house through his own love for God. Whose love must he enter through? The Lord's. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to explain how we enter through God's love, but we need to finish out this verse because we have another clue here. David says, I will bow down. This king over all of Israel bows down. He submits to the Lord, and he says, towards the temple. The temple was the symbolic uh, presence of the Lord. Some might say here, well, there's a mistake in the Bible. They want to say, well, the temple wasn't built during David's lifetime. That came during King Solomon's life. So it's obviously a mistake. Au contraire, mon frere, or sister. (laughs) David, leaving this hymn for his posterity, had confidence already that God was going to allow his descendants to build a temple. The Lord promised it would happen in 2 Samuel. And if God said it, it would happen. Therefore, David can write by faith that the tabernacle that he was used to praying toward would soon become a temple. 
David is demonstrating a faith in God's promises. But know here again, there is a specific attitude in approaching the Lord through his steadfast love in the fear of you. Even though God loves him, David has a healthy fear of Yahweh. And this is a clue as to why David can expect the Lord's hesed. People who commit evil deeds rarely fear retribution for their actions. They think they either have the right to do such things or they think they can get away with it. They do not fear God. They do not think justice will come. But David demonstrates a fearfulness of the God who judges. He knows he has no justification on his own. Therefore, he must enter into the Lord's presence, not through his sense of human love, but through Yahweh's love. So in a nutshell, in the first section here, David is praying that God would hear his case of offense because the Lord hates evildoers and will execute justice. And yet, based upon that affirmation, that same affirmation there, David is able to ask for this because of God's love toward him, not his love towards God. That is part one of the psalm. And next is a most remarkable prayer. Look at this. David prays, lead me, O Yahweh, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Lead me, O Yahweh, in your righteousness because of of my enemies. David's ultimate concern is to be righteous before God, not his safety. David wants to do the right thing here as he is being persecuted. That is David's first concern, to do what God would have him do. He's not asking to be righteous because there's no pressure and he can take his time to work it out. He is asking for it when the pressure is on. Lord, he prays, lead me in your righteousness because my enemies are after me. This word lead is the same exact word of the great shepherd's action in Psalm 23. Lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Is this what you do? People demean you, they belittle you, and in the midst of it, you pray, Lord, lead me to act according to your ways? I must confess, rarely is my first thought, the Lord is just in all he does, and I can trust that he's going to provide me with the appropriate response. Again, I'm tempted to act first and ask for forgiveness later. He intensifies this even more in his petition here. Make your way straight before me. Don't let me choose the way on my own. Lead me in your path. The word make could also be translated as direct, but I like make because it's stronger in English. Lord, make me do it this way. Both of these verbs are the same that David uses in Psalm 25, verses 4 through 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. David is more concerned about doing the right thing, being righteous before God, than he is about his safety and his vindication. And he can focus on his own actions because of what he affirms in the next two verses. David is aware of the consequences of sin. Verse 9, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Do those words sound familiar to you? They should. We've heard them often here. Paul quotes this verse along with several other Old Testament verses regarding human sin in Romans chapter 3. 
how apart from what Christ has done on our behalf, every single one of us is guilty of offending a holy and just God. Let let me just read Romans 3 to you again. This is Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When David affirms this, In verse 9 of Psalm 5, he knows it is their own evil doing that brings about his enemy's destruction. Verse 9 and 10 form a type of chiasm here. Chiasm for others. I'm looking at you, Ryan. You know that. They flatter. They don't speak truth. Therefore, inside of them is their own destruction. Their throat's like an open grave waiting for them. And since David knows that God is just, he states here in verse 10, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. This is significant. David knows their own sin has trapped them. It's the reason they must fall. But catch this. It's not because they have sinned against David that they deserve punishment. It is because speaking evil things is sinning against God. Look at that. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David has not prayed for vengeance because they offended him, but because they rebelled against God. And with this prayer in verse 8, David wants to make sure he himself is walking the righteous path. But notice the hope of verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you, rejoice. Perhaps if you're using your worship guide, you might circle the word all. If you're more daring, you can do it in your own Bible. Who might that include? All? Everyone, right? Including David's enemies. He even prays for those that are taking refuge in the Lord. Let them sing for joy. Spread your protection over them. Why? That those who love your name may exult in you. To love God's name means that you are concerned for his renown. You are concerned for his reputation. You want to abide by his holiness and not offend your creator. You want to see his glory unfold. And that means living righteously. And he ends with another emphatic pronoun. The word for is important. Again, same Hebrew particle that's in verse 4. It connects to the truth of the next line of what precedes it. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. To bless is to make happy. You cover the righteous one with favor, or this can be translated as acceptance. You cover the righteous with acceptance. This verb is the same used like a bird covering its chicks with its wings. And it adds here, as with a shield. This is not the small lightweight shield that you used in a sword fight. It's a huge shield that, that protects the whole body of a warrior from arrows that are shot at him. It's large and it's cumbersome. And since it protects the whole body, sometimes it had to be carried by another to protect the warrior as he approached a siege wall. 
This idea of a protective mother and a shield is expressed again by David in Psalm 91, verse 4. He will cover you with his opinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Those who take refuge in God, the righteous ones, will find protection, safety, and security like a mother hen over her chicks, like a shield bearer protecting the vulnerable warrior that's inside. So if you're like me, you might have a few questions about this psalm, like, is this just whining when we feel oppressed? After all, I tell my kids all the time, don't whine. Shouldn't David either deflect the words spoken against him or just deal with them himself? Is it wrong to pray for justice for your enemies instead of forgiveness? And how did David get a pass from all this judgment? For himself. No, there are some beautiful truths that are implied in this psalm. First, God's righteousness, his ways, his doctrine, his actions are supreme. They must be adhered to. David acknowledges that first and foremost. His only concern for vindication is not what's been wrong to him, but that it also violated the righteousness of the Lord. So it's never wrong to acknowledge God's holiness. Christians are not incongruent when they pray for justice despite being sinners themselves. Second, David acknowledges that the reason he can approach this holy God is not due to his own efforts, but through the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the gospel. God doesn't save us because we loved him first. No, we are willfully disobedient to his commands for our lives. Even though he is the creator, we love the created things more than him. We're selfish. So the only way to approach this holy, just God is through his love. And how did he love us? Well, that's John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved what? Love the world? In fact, a proper translation of that famous verse is actually, for God so loved the world in this way. How did he love? He gave his only begotten son. How did he give us Jesus? Jesus came to the earth, lived a perfect life to show us perfect obedience, what that looks like. But not only that, in doing so, he became the perfect sacrifice, laying down his own life on the cross to receive the full penalty for our sins, that propitiation I talked about earlier, which allows us to have a clean slate as we approach this holy God through his love so that whoever believes in him will not perish before this holy God but have eternal life. We've already pointed out in this psalm how David approached God by faith. He did so submitting to the promise of the temple. The temple represents the sacrifices that must be made in order to make one right before God. David is trusting in Yahweh's promise of love to him, which will eventually be the coming of Jesus Christ. It's the same for David as it is for any human being. We must come to God through his steadfast love in his son, not our own efforts. Let all who take refuge in you, rejoice. 
So knowing that the only way to make restitution for sins is to come to the Father through Jesus, does praying for justice and for evil to be punished contradict Jesus' attitude on the cross when he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Not at all. God is always concerned about his own glory. He's always concerned about his own attributes, and justice is one of those. The writers of the New Testament had no trouble praying for God's justice. Paul wrote in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul also told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 to see that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter of purity because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. The writer to the Hebrews wrote, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And a little later, he writes in chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the New Testament writers had no problem with praying for God's justice and that one is accountable before the Lord. They took no issue because there is a way out. As a fellow sinner, it is because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross that I can pray for justice when others sin against God. I know that they will either be punished by God's wrath or that justice will be satisfied in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, I really should not pray for justice because it means I have no standard of justice if it's not applied to my own personal thoughts and behavior. In fact, it's because of the atonement of Jesus that I can freely love those who sin against me. I don't have to worry about seeking restitution or retribution as I love them and they continue to harm me because God has this covered already. I read earlier in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let me finish the rest of Paul's thoughts. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is because God is just, and Christ has satisfied the retribution that I am free to love and to do good to others even when they seek to do me wrong. I am free to evangelize and tell others the good news of Jesus Christ and tell them all to take refuge in him. Otherwise, I would be wrong to love without seeking justice. I should be more concerned with how God's glory is maligned by their sin. But now I can offer hope for the sinner rather than desiring retribution because God has provided a way through Jesus to be justified. So Christian, it is right to pray for justice. But pray in such a way for hope for the sinner that they may take refuge in Christ and rejoice in him, that they may sing for joy, that they would exalt in and love the name of Jesus and experience his protection. So let the sinner malign me. 
Let the non-believer castigate me for being a follower of Christ. I can be relieved of seeking retribution in such circumstances, knowing that my sovereign God has that covered. Instead, I can do the right thing on such an occasion and pray for the soul of the one doing me harm and share the blessed hope of Jesus who takes away sin and that they can find refuge in the same place that I have found refuge. I'm going to end with just three challenging questions for you. Just to think about as we head into 2022. Number one, can you forgive others who have offended you knowing that God has taken care of retribution one way or the other? Can you forgive others that have offended you knowing that God has taken care of retribution one way or the other? To those that are offending you, can you love them despite that because God first loved you? Those that have offended you, can you love them first because God loved you first? and extend mercy to them? And then can you make it your goal this year to sing and pray Psalm 5? To spend time in this psalm, at least on a weekly basis, to remind yourself of God's sense of justice and that what the concern here is not you getting your pound of flesh, but that God is glorified. And hear from him how you should act and that you should conduct yourself when others are behaving badly towards you. I think you're going to need it this year. Let's pray. Lord, first and foremost, we have to thank you for allowing us to take refuge in the work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we can say that if we are truly saved, we are so consciously aware of our sin and how it plagues us on a daily way. And Lord, we know that it's because of what Christ has done that the sin debt has been satisfied. And we can rest in what Christ had done on our behalf so that we might enjoy your presence. Our fear of you is a good, healthy fear, knowing what our sin deserves, but also producing a love inside of us, an awe inside of us that you would love us in such a way. Lord, as we battle this world, as we battle seeking to be Christians, teach us to love Teach us to love you first and foremost, and because the way you loved us, allow us to love others in the same way. We pray, Lord, that we would talk about your steadfast, enduring love. We pray that we would share with others what is truly troubling their soul, not actions that we have done, but their own sin, and how that can be made right through Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for 
a year of blessing, not only to ourselves, but also of being able to bless others. Let us exult in you. Let us know that we are always under your protection, and we pray this in Christ alone. Amen.